0: The peace be with you. The peace be with you. It's good to have you all out uh, this evening. Is this sound okay? A little loud? Good enough? Well, let me first uh, say welcome. We're glad. Um, we, I'm not, not the royal we. I am glad that you all are here with us for the third week of our new Theology Matters program called The Bible Says It that settles it with a question mark. Some of you have been here now all three weeks, Uh, thank you. Your participation grade is definitely higher as a result. For those who have missed, um, we're still delighted that you're here. Um, All of our uh, videos and audios for these programming uh, is available on the app and online. We're slowly getting things up. So if you wanna go back and see something you've missed, go to the app or the website and you can find that. Um, I'll also just add though that Uh, Each week of this course is intentionally designed to stand on its own. So if you see all four, all the better because it builds a larger argument, it all fits. But if you miss one, you're not going to be out of place tonight. Tonight will make sense even if you weren't here last week or even the week before. So we're delighted you're here. As always, there's some coffee in the back, decaf coffee. Uh, There's some dessert from Highland Bakery at any point. Feel free to get up and get more, get seconds, get thirds. or Get your first round. Um, I'm going to. Many of you have signed in. Thank you for this. This is not to put you on my Christmas uh, wrapping list uh, uh, sale. Uh, This is just to keep track of who's here uh, and to get information out to you better. So I think most of you have signed up. But I'm going to pass this around again. Gene, I'm going to start with you. If you wouldn't mind circulating it. Um, Okay. Parking, is everyone okay with parking? I keep forgetting to ask. Uh, is everyone either in the back or we're okay? If you need your parking validated, if you're over here, um, there's a stamp that you can get up at the front desk where the officer sits. If you're, is anyone over in the Laz lot? Okay, I will get you a, a little card on the way out, so. In, in place, we're gonna, we're gonna do something different. Um, we're not gonna pray, we are gonna pray, but we're gonna <laughs> sing our prayer tonight. For those of you who were here last week, we're going to go back and sing Psalm 133 verse 1. How many of you were here last week? A good many of you. Oh, so you were, most of you are pros at this song. If you weren't here last week, I'll do a quick review of a song. This is um, one of the many, 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 many songs uh, I teach my Hebrew students at Columbia Seminary. And this is just one, and we're going to sing it. I'm going to give you the transliteration so, you, so you're basically reading English sounds. Uh, But we're going to be singing, really, Hebrew. And we're singing uh, Psalm 133.1. And and I'll tell you why I love this psalm. Uh, How very good and pleasant it is when kindred, that is brothers and sisters, us, live together in unity. In its own right, this is a beautiful verse, I think, one that describes the vision and hope of First Presbyterian Church as we are a diverse body who I hope lives together in unity, but I I see a second meaning in this verse. Um, The word here to live in Hebrew is also just means to sit, like literally to sit down, and I think the context is a temple service. It's a psalm, so we typically think of temple worship service as a context, and why would people have sat at temple? To sing, but I also think to hear scripture read. And so I think what we're singing in this verse is literally what we're doing together as part of this course. How good and pleasant it is when we live, sit, read scripture together in unity. It doesn't mean that we're always going to think the same thing, but the fact that we're here together around tables discussing difficult texts, I think is a good and pleasant thing. So let's sing it. Here's how it goes. Um, I have the transliteration here. Kine matov, uma naim. Shevet Achim. Is that guttural where you spit your uh, spit on your neighbor's neck? Shevet Achim, gayachad. Gayachad. And here's how the song goes: I will dare to sing it on my own, um, and then you're gonna follow. So it goes like this. Hin a Matov Umanaim Hin Matov Manayim Shevet Achim Heen Gayahad a Matov Manayim Achim Matov Umanayim Hin Matov Manayim not bad, not bad. Are we ready to sing this in a round? So those of you who had practice last week, we're going to sing it in a round. Here's how it's going to work. These two tables. Well, first of all, do we have any, um, anyone who would like to admit a musical talent in the room? There are, I think there are some. There are some. <laughs> Now, you know my philosophy about bad singing. Bad singing is best dealt with by singing louder, right? Mm -hmm. So the the worst singer you are, just bring up the volume. It'll equal everything out. So this side, okay, this side, these two tables, and folks uh, seated over here, uh, you're going to start. okay? and I'm going to start with you, and you're going to sing the first song, Once they get done that first line, then you guys will start. Now, here's the deal. I'm going to go with them and sing kind of the second round, sing sing the back, what's that called? The the back half of the round, whatever that is. Um, The echo or this. okay, I like it though. And then you guys gotta keep strong. Let's just try it, let's just see how it works, okay? You all with me, what's gonna happen here? Now remember, since this middle line is repeated, we're gonna sing that the first time in unity. Well, second time, you'll be on your second as they'll be on their first. So we'll be synced up for that one time. So that's a place to gather back together. You guys ready? I'm confident in this group. I feel really <laughs> strong about this. Okay. Hine ma tov umanayim. Hine ma tov umanayim. Hine ma tov manayim. gayahad. Hinei manaim manayim; him ga'yad. Hinei matov, u'manayim. Hinei matov, manayim; Shavirahim Give yourself a round of applause. That's not bad. That's not bad. We will, we will perfect this next week, in our fourth and final week. So if nothing else, if you finish this course, you'll get to say that you know a little bit of Hebrew and that you've memorized a verse, a verse from Psalm 133. As a, as a side note, I love when people bring me uh, articles, cartoons. Continue to do that. I treasure this, and I use it uh, when I teach in other contexts. So thank you all for giving me this. And let me know if you need it back, otherwise I'll take it. Um, Last week, we'll do a quick review, and we have a lot of work to do, um, lest this course extend to six weeks. Week two, we surfaced two and a half, three ideally, but two and a half important theses, all of which focus on the nature of the literature found in our Bibles. Uh, First, we talked about how the Bible, properly speaking, is a library and not a book. And this was a twofold observation. On the one hand, it was a technological observation. The ability to make books only began around the time of Jesus. So for all of the length of of the writings of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, it didn't exist in a book form. In fact, really, book form did not really take off until at least the 15th century CE. Uh, Otherwise, texts that we know of scripture existed as individual scrolls. So you might have, this church might have the scroll of Mark, the scroll of Acts, the Genesis scroll, and maybe the Isaiah scroll, but nothing else. For the vast majority of Christian history and Jewish history, for that matter, the Bible did not exist as a book. And that actually makes a big difference in terms of how you use it and how you read it. But it's also a theological observation, not just a technological one. To say that the library or the, the Bible is a library, not a book, is a way of talking about the profound diversity of literature, perspectives, and ideas that we find in this collection, in this bibliotheca, as Jerome called it. That's something just to recognize, especially as we think back to our bumper sticker that began this course, the Bible says it, that settles it, maybe, but the Bible says a lot of things, in part because the Bible consists of many different books by many different authors that address various different contexts. That makes reading the Bible for us today a little bit more complicated, but in the end it's good news because we have a scripture that has the capacity to reflect back to us the complexity and diversity of life, be that the diversity of one another and who we are as individuals, the diversity of lament and praise, of exile and homecoming, of loss and resurrection. We find these scriptures to bear witness to that diversity of things. And I say thanks be to God that we have a library and not a book. Second, which is really fourth, we said the Bible is filled with different genres of literature, each with its own rules of engagement. Why do I have a picture of pigeons on the screen, for those of you who were here last week? Let me hear it again. Yeah, we could talk about genres as pigeonholes. They're little categories. They're categories that are similar in style, format, subject matter, language, et cetera. It's a way to kind of recognize that some literature is different than others. And we do this all the time in English. Uh, We talked about um, the Dear John letter, for instance. What would happen if we read a Dear John letter as a love letter? We'd miss the point. We would lose the fact that we were getting dumped not proposed to, right? In English, we have all sorts of genres. And because we've, most of us have grown up in this culture, speaking the language and reading books from childhood, we just have an intuition. When a story begins once upon a time, we know that we're not reading a history book. We know we're reading a fairy tale. We have those intuitions built in, and those intuitions help guide us to know how to read this text, to know what to expect of it, to know what questions to ask of it. The problem is, We don't have such intuitions when it comes to ancient literature. And as a result, uh, to play on this uh, pigeonhole thing, we often put foxes in pigeonholes. We expect from ancient literature, or we ask of ancient literature things that it didn't meant to do. Or we assume that it's saying one thing, because we get its genre wrong, than what it's actually saying. We gave some examples of this, particularly from the Pauline epistles, um, that we tend to read as systematic theologies, and we talked about the prophets as fortune or future tellers, and how those assumptions about what that literature is, is not an assumption anyone in the ancient world would have had. They would have assumed prophets were not predicting the distant future, they would have assumed the prophets were talking about a sociopolitical political context in the here and now. It's not that there's disagreement about the Bible, there's confusion about genre. Lots more to say about those two things, but that's mostly where we were last week. And uh, in terms of this week, what I want to do, I mostly want to move on to some theses that deal with, uh, that really get to the heart of the matter of how we approach interpretively the Bible. But before we do that, there's a last thesis that has to do with the nature of biblical literature. And we started this off last week with a question, what's the relationship between the Bible and history? This was at the very, very end, and you all discussed it and had great ideas. And here's how I summarized what I heard. If this was Facebook language, we would say relationship status, it's complicated, the Bible and history. Um, so I want to say a couple things very briefly about it. And namely, what I wanna, the thesis before us is this, that, that while the Bible is not a history book, or no, it's the other way around, while there's history in the Bible, the Bible is not a history book. While there's history in the Bible, the Bible is not a history book. So let me give you an example of both sides of that equation. What sort of history is in the Bible? That is, um, does the Bible really tell us true things about the ancient world? Can we verify certain things that the Bible says based in archeology span or based on the reading of other ancient texts? The answer is, and I think this is a good answer, by and large, at least in certain areas, we can. That there, are, that there is stuff in the Bible that is not just made up, it's not fiction, it's not just kind of the, the whimsy of faith. It it's actually reflects real things that have happened in history. And I thought I would just give you a couple different um, kind of representative examples of where the Bible gives us some verifiable history. The first thing, is a large thing called a stella. A stella is just a big, stone, smooth rock. It stands about four feet tall, this one does. This one's called the Merneptah stella. Merneptah was the name of a pharaoh from the late 13th century BCE. And the reason this is important, and by the way, you can see this in the Cairo Museum. I saw it about a year before the Cairo Museum was looted uh, in the the Revolution. What's interesting as a side note about the Cairo Museum, has anyone ever been there? So what's in, you'll know this, what's interesting about it is you know, in America we go to museums and there's these red velvet ropes and there's glass and you stand way back from everything. Cairo Museum, there's no labels, you just walk up to stuff, you could touch this, you could shake it if you want, there's no security, there's, anyway, it's just a very different sort of scene than we know from American or um, Western European museums. Anyway, the reason why the Merneptostella is important is that this is our first non-biblical reference Israel. This is the first time we hear someone else other than a biblical author speak of Israel. In fact, um, I'll show you where Israel is. Um, this is in hier- hieroglyphs, Middle Egyptian hieroglyphs. Um, this little phrase right here that's kind of a little bit highlighted, that's the word Israel. Now the way hieroglyphs work, this isn't a lesson in hieroglyphs, but uh, you always read into the face of of the signs. That's how you know how to read Egyptian. You read into the face of these little signs. And this is a phonetic spelling, essentially, of the word uh, Israel. And they have this little marker at the end. See this little guy standing there? That tells you that the thing just named is a nation, or a people, group. So This is the first reference. Uh, and it's in the, but here's the interesting, it's in the context of the king, the pharaoh, bragging about victories that he won in the land of Canaan and in other places. And interestingly in this line, this is very common of Egyptian pharaohs, he's saying, and I laid Israel waste. That is, I wiped it out utterly. He didn't, but he liked to boast of that. This is, the pharaohs always do this. You know, I wiped out all of these people. The funny thing is, those other countries have little monuments that say that they wiped out the Egyptians. It's all propaganda, basically. Uh, that would never happen today in politics or in war. Um, but, uh, but this is the first reference to Egypt or to, uh, to Israel. And it's in the 13th century, so quite early, in fact. Uh, and it's pretty cool that we can actually go and see this sort of object. So we know Israel was a thing. It existed in each world. People knew about this country. Um, another example, and, and these are um, not exhaustive by any means. This is called the Tel Dan inscription. The word Tel is a name for a kind of a, uh, an archaeological site in the land of Dan in ancient Israel. It's an inscription that right here mentions the house of David. The house of David. This is the first and actually only non-biblical reference to King David. So at the very least we know he existed, or at least there was someone named David who existed in the late 9th century or sometime before that and, and had, a, had a, uh, a kingdom of some sort. Now here again, Uh, the king um, is boasting of having destroyed uh, King David and his empire, which I don't think is completely accurate. But nevertheless, this is the uh, talk about uh, genres. This is a very different genre. Um, A couple other things just to note. um, This is called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's an edict by the king of Persia from 539 BCE. And in this edict, he is, is allowing the Israelites, or in other people, to go back From exile. They had been in exile in Babylon. Uh, The Persians defeated the Babylonians and King Cyrus comes along and says, you can go back to your own country. The exile is over. Go back. Farm your lands. Rebuild your temple. Be with your people. The exile is over. Uh, It has been hailed as the first humanitarian document in the history of the world. That's probably not quite right, um, but there is something. uh, Cyrus was certainly a nicer king. Uh, than many of the Babylonian kings. And so, I mean, uh, we know this, this corresponds to history in Israel. Here's a couple more. Um, Josephus, a first century Roman Jewish historian, uh, mentions a variety of things in the New Testament, including Jesus and the origins of the church. So here's a, uh, Paul, yeah? was that written on that? Oh, oh yeah, this is a clay cylinder. So it's about this big, it's like basically the size of a football, a little bit longer. And they wrote in cuneiform, uh, Persian, in cuneiform, uh, in lines that went around the syllable. So you meant to, you would, as you would read it, you would kind of rotate it like this. Now, my cuneiform is a bit rusty at this point, um, but uh, it's, it's an ancient language that... Um, you know, I believe this is in the Louvre, but I can't, I don't quite remember which museum houses it anymore. It's, be, it's beautiful in part because it's so well intact. You think about this, it's 2,600 years old about, and it's still very readable, except for this um, kind of dent there. Um, other things to say, um, oops, sorry, that's too far. Um, a lot of other things we could point out where the Bible mentioned things that are historically verifiable, but there are gaps. The Bible is not a history book by the standards of today. In fact, um, a lot of things in the Bible aren't quite so historical. Numbers, for instance, numbers, amount of people in an army, are often exaggerated for the same sort of rhetorical effect that the kings of of, uh, ancient Near East exaggerated victories. Um, David's kingdom, for instance, we know David existed, or at least we have a pretty good idea David existed, but the extent of his empire, the amount of riches and wealth that he and Solomon had, Probably a bit inflated. We don't have any record of of that anywhere else. Doesn't mean it didn't happen, but we're suspicious of it uh, at some level. Um, Wealth of Solomon is another one. But a classic example are the Walls of Jericho. And here we need another musical interlude, just because it's fun. Uh, And I couldn't get this to load into my program, so we have to switch out. This is just one of my favorite songs, and it's about the walls of Jericho. This is Mahalia Jackson. And you might know this announcer. At the same time, one of the most dynamic personalities I've ever met. When you hear her, you understand why she is the world's greatest gospel singer, This is Mahalia Jackson. It's short and enjoyable. I don't think she's miked, I think this is just her voice. favorites Um, in a uh, college uh, Bible class one time at Emory I put a a multiple choice question at the end of the exam that asked uh, that said Mahalia Jackson is the greatest gospel singer of all time and they had to answer true or false the answer of course was true Um, what does fit mean by the way Joshua fit the battle yeah it's an archaic past tense of fight Um, or uh, so so he, what's the problem with Mihaly Jackson's song? It's lovely, it's wonderful. What's the problem with Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho? It didn't happen, or at least Joshua didn't fight it. Because we would expect, right, if Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho, and if the walls came tumbling down, like most walls in the ancient world, we would expect to find it at Jericho. And we know where Jericho is. Again, we, um, as if I excavated it. But people have excavated the site of Jericho. Here's the problem. There are walls that have been destroyed, but destroyed about 600 years before the Israelites would have been there. And at the time the Israelites would have been there, fighting the battle of Jericho, Jericho didn't exist. So what do we do with that? In fact, in the book of Joshua, 31 cities are said to have been destroyed um, in this conquest of the land. We know of 20 of them from uh, contemporary archaeology. Two show signs of destruction at the time the Israelites would have been conquering the land. What do we do with the book of Joshua? What is it up to? It's not telling us history the way we know history. So the Bible has history in it, but not everything we find in the Bible is, strictly speaking, historical. Here are are the two caveats, or here are the way I frame it. The Bible, it's a history with a purpose. It's a history with a purpose. It's preached history. It's history framed and motivated by certain theological interests. So consider the book of Joshua. It's not telling, it's not a military uh, handbook of how exactly the Israelites came to be in the land of Israel. It's a folk tale. It's a tale about how God somehow gave the people this land. We don't know exactly how the Israelites came into the land of Canaan. But we know the story. And we know the point of the story. We know the point of the story is to guarantee the Israelites that they belonged. That it was God who brought them into this land. Think about how significant that was. The Israelites were basically a small nation in the midst of superpowers for all of history. It was exiled, defeated, and here's this legendary story about, for once, the Israelites being on top. For once, the Israelites drive out the enemies. It wasn't a story about history. It was a story to inspire hope that they might one day have that land, that their God might one day provide for them. So it's preached history, or it's history with an arc towards the future. No one read this in the ancient world and thought, oh, that's exactly how it happened. They read it and said, what's the message? What am I supposed to believe in light of this story? And you were supposed to believe in a sovereign God who had given the people a land, a land of promise. That's what the story is about. about. It's a sermon more than a history book. Does that make sense? Let me just pause there. I don't want to spend too long on these points, but does that generally make sense what a history with a purpose is? Do we have examples of histories with purposes today? Yeah, there's some George Washington stuff that I think fits that category. We know George Washington existed and did real historical things, just like we know the Israelites existed and did real historical things. Did George Washington cut down a cherry tree? My guess is no, but I also guess that that story has a point and that story builds our vision of George Washington in a way that has a clear purpose. The other one I always think of is the kind of the first Thanksgiving sort of scene between the, uh, the pilgrims and uh, the Native Americans. Were there Native Americans? Were there pilgrims? Might they have ever eaten together, perhaps? But I think we have a national legend in a, in a way. About that first Thanksgiving. Is it a lie? I wouldn't call it that. I would call it history with a purpose. Well, it, it has a meaning. It has a That's a better way to say it. Thank you. It has a meaning. It has a meaning. Okay? I think that's what the Bible's doing in some places, such as the book of Joshua. Yeah, Jeff. When were they written? Yeah. Well, this is really important. It's a great question. Um, so uh, and it kind of leads to my next, uh, next little slide, too. But Joshua most likely was, we don't know when it began to be written, but it was probably finalized. And get this, Joshua was probably finalized while the Israelites were in exile. That is, here's a story about the Israelites gaining land precisely when they are a landless people. Think about how that works right? It's the only way, in other words, this, this, because Joshua has many troubling things in it, including violence, and war, and holy war, and the like, but in a way, though, think about it. Writing this literature was a type of nonviolent antidote to the brutalizing powers of the world. They couldn't do this to the Assyrians and the Babylonians, right? Compl- militarily, they had no shot, but they could write literature as a response. And in that literature they could imagine not being a landless people anymore. That actually helps us ethically with the book of Joshua. That actually helps us to see the message and not take it as as kind of literal history. The other thing I just want to say quickly, and I'm not going to dwell on this, um, I want to say also about the Bible, it's a book with a history. It's a book that was written by many people over time. Some of the literature that we find in the Bible was edited and reworked centuries after it was originally written, right? So I I actually, when I teach undergrads, I actually teach them that we have something of a wiki Bible. You know how a Wikipedia entry works? Like someone does the initial work, presumably, and then anyone can go on, it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but anyone can go on and add something or make an adjustment or make a change that overstates the, the composition of the Bible. But something kind of like that happened in that you had original sources and stories and traditions that were compiled, but over time you also had people come in, often priests, who said, yeah, that's good, but what if I added this? What if I, just, if I put in this other detail uh, that makes sense uh, or, or kind of frames the situation differently? So, so the Bible itself is a book with a history, even as it's not exactly a history book. Let me pause here, um, just for any kind of concluding questions. Uh, this was the most, com- I think this actually was the, the most complicated of all the theses that we have. So I just want to make sure we, we pause enough to have any discussion if needed. Well, for so long, the history was history. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so it was passed down orally, and, mm-hmm. was and mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's right. So a lot of the history of the Bible actually predates its own writing. So particularly stories of ancestors or even creation stories most likely existed in Israelite culture before they were ever written down because writing was hard. Not many people knew how to do it. It was super expensive. It was hard to preserve. So you preserve stories orally. So in that sense, the, the Bible's history is much longer than its written history or the history of the story is much longer than the history of the written text. Anything else? Yeah, Paul. I would, that's a, that's a nice question. I would say in the broadest terms, archaeology has proven kind of a general framework that coheres with much of what we find in the Bible. It's the details that are often the point of, of contrast. Now, that could be for one of two reasons, or maybe more. One is, it could be an accident of archaeology. That is, we just haven't found stuff yet. Maybe it's there. or Maybe it disintegrated. Maybe we don't know about it. But maybe, it, it, maybe there's more in the, in the dirt that confirms the Bible than we actually know. But some of it, though, I think is that um, biblical authors were writing for, in, in a rhetorical style and for certain purposes that weren't as concerned with the details of history as we sometimes are. A great example is the numbers. You know, how many... How many Israelites left the land of Egypt? You know the biblical account. I can't quite remember, um, but it's it's hundreds of thousands. There's no way there were that many people in Egypt. It does. The Jordan River is real little. (laughs) It's real little. Um, So anyway, so there's a there's kind of purposeful exaggeration that can skew things. Um, Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Mm. It depends which one, um, but the old—I'm t- thinking of Old Testament ones. Matthew. Yeah, I think the Matthew ones. Um, I think it's a little bit of a blend, uh, especially you know in—is um, it Luke goes back to Adam? Is that right? And Matthew—is that Luke goes back? I—I I, get—I think it's—it's it's very hazy <laughs> going back that far. I think generations are skipped. If you look back, I believe the. The Luke um, version. I'm getting my Luke and Matthew a little bit mixed up. Um, classic Old Testament teacher. Um, I think there's 70 generations in the Lucan version, and that 70 was more of a symbolic number than than necessarily a, a kind of a detailed cataloging. You know, they didn't. What's the what's the website? Um, the genealogy website today? Ancestry. Ancestry.com. They didn't do that, right? They didn't go back to there, and they made sure to mention certain people that would have mattered, right? And in the Matthew version, it's some women of ill repute. Now, were they really part of Jesus' line? I'm not sure, but Matthew's making a point in naming some outsiders as being a part of Jesus' line. So I would say it's, a, it's, a, it's also preached history. I think there's something to it, but it's also rhetorically framed to prove certain points. Yeah, Tim. How, how far back? Years did, they, did they know that hundreds of years ago? Oh, uh, how long ago did scholars recognize this? Oh, 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 great question. Um, so uh, uh, this is pushing me a little bit, but I think Spinoza in the 16th century had already um, had more complicated ideas about uh, the composition of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So b- by then, people were already questioning kind of a very straightforward mosaic authorship. They thought something else was going on. By the 17th, 18th century, um, and certainly by the 19th, it was a foregone conclusion that that the composition of these books was by many different sources, many different authors uh, and, and editors. So maybe as early as 500 years ago, but by 200 years ago, it was consensus for the most part. Great questions. Anything else? Well, um, people were asking different sorts of questions about biblical literature other than historical ones. And I'm going to actually get to this in a, in a, a later slide, but people weren't primarily studying the Bible with, with historical interest. Who wrote it? When did it come about? They were asking theological questions. Now people still do ask that, but the, uh, in the 19th century a form of biblical scholarship developed that was very historically oriented. And that's when those questions began to bubble up. And that had a lot to do more with kind of the intellectual developments of the late 18th and early 19th century that were broader than the Bible, but eventually um, got applied to the Bible as well. OK, let's, um, let's transition then to, um, to, where am I at? Thesis 6? OK. We're dealing now more with interpretive issues. All of this is interpretive, but here I want to address head on a couple particular interpretive issues. In the summer of 1978, a large group of evangelical pastors and scholars gathered uh, in a hotel in Chicago and drafted what's known as the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy. This statement, uh, which was then later signed by many other conservatives um, and evangelicals and some mainline uh, pastors as well, Um, said a lot of different things about the nature of the Bible. It would be worth a course in its own right. But the point I want to highlight of the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy is something they have to say about the literal meaning of the Bible or literal varieties of interpretation. They say this, We affirm the necessity of interpreting the Bible, I like that part of it, according to its literal or normal sense. The literal sense is the grammatical historical sense that is the meaning which the writer expressed. And we deny, therefore, the legitimacy of any approach to scripture that attributes to it meaning which the literal sense does not support. The paraphrase here is that literal interpretations of the Bible are the only valid interpretations of the Bible. Part of me wants to ask if you would agree or disagree, but let me ask this other question. What's behind this? I mean, what's, what's the goal of having this statement about literalism? Certainty. Certainty. Keep it the same. OK, keep it the same, right? We have these sorts of things in, in other genres of literature, namely the Constitution. Um, any other ideas? Control. Control, OK. Fear. Fear that it might get out of hand if we opened up its meaning. Indeed, and there are strange interpretations out there, in fact. <laughs> yeah, Walter. Yeah, I, I think that's it too. It's legitimacy. Um, I think the most charitable reading, Brian? Well, I think the key is in error. yes. Uh, yes. The, this, the Bible says Yes, right. There's not much work we have to do. With this statement. Now, in fairness, this, this, this statement on literalism really follows from other doctrines of scripture. I think this is like Article 17 or something like that. There's, there's a bunch of other things it says that leads up to this point. I'm not giving it to you, in part because the subject of, lat, of the final week of this course is models of biblical authority. So we'll deal more squarely with some of those things at that point. Um, it, I think in the most charitable read, and I want to give it the most charitable read, The signers of uh, the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy want to take the Bible seriously. They want it to matter. They want to be able to say, look, the Bible is saying something, God is behind it, and I say amen to all of that. I want this to have some weight in life. I love that. And I would uh, encourage all of you to want to take the Bible seriously, to want to take its authority seriously, to want to take it as as a text as seriously as possible. But here's my question. Is reading the Bible literally the best way to take it it seriously? Is reading the Bible literally the best way to take it seriously? And my answer to that, if you haven't guessed, is no. Let's take the Bible seriously, like these folks do. But I think they get off track in thinking that a literal reading is the best way to do it. And I just have three, two, kind of three, just test cases of why that's, just some examples of why that case. There's really are hundreds of these examples, but I'll highlight just three of them. First, okay, here on the left side is the Chicago Statement of Errancy, the necessity of interpreting the Bible according to its literal or non-normal sense. Now I'm going to balance that with some other problems. First is the problem of metaphors. Here's my question. What is the literal meaning of a metaphor? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Oops, I wasn't supposed to show you that. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What's the literal meaning of a non-literal statement? Like a shepherd? Okay. Right. So is the literal meaning of a metaphor to make it non-metaphorical? That doesn't seem quite right, though, does it? So I mean, this is just an obvious example. The Bible is chock full of metaphors. In fact, the primary way the Bible talks about God is through metaphors, through metaphors. I have a whole uh, CTS course on biblical metaphors for this very reason. The Bible traffics in metaphor. But how do we read metaphors literally? Well, maybe we say we try to imagine what the author would have thought of when he came up with the metaphor. Maybe that's its literal sense, is what the author thought of. So what did the author think of when he says in Psalm 23, 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What picture comes to mind? It flashed on the screen earlier. Well, what picture for you comes to mind? Yes, this kind, sweet, gentle Jesus by the river with the little lambs and carrying it off. That would be our kind of literal sense of the metaphorical meaning. One problem with that is that there's no way that's what the ancients thought. The most common metaphor for kings in the ancient world, shepherds. Why? Because kings protected their flock by killing predators. So just like a king or just like a shepherd kills a lion to protect the sheep, so kings killed other people to protect his citizens. And so the most common metaphor, when you thought shepherd in the ancient world, you thought this. You thought the king killing a lion. That's a really different picture than this, I think. So what's the literal meaning of that metaphor? It's a problem for literal readings. So the one point of advice I have for you is to think of a difference between the literal meaning and the literary meaning. The literal meaning is a way to try to pin down language in some historical sense. A literary meaning takes the metaphor seriously as non-literal language. It says, I need to think about what this metaphor means. What do people picture when they picture shepherds? What do shepherds mean in my own language? What does it mean to call God a shepherd? In what ways is God like and not like a shepherd? Because remember, metaphors aren't definitions. There's both an is-ness and an is-notness to shepherd. There might be aspects of God that we might imagine as being shepherd-like, but God's not like all shepherds. And God's not literally a shepherd. Same thing with king and father. And warrior, and all these other metaphors. Exactly, exactly. And in fact, um, what's interesting is that uh, the the biblical authors have a little fun with this at the expense of the Assyrians. God, um, to go back to this image, God in the Old Testament is often described as a lion. And who does the lion prowl upon? The kings. So, it, so the Bible basically reverses this image. Assyrians like to picture them, Assyrian kings like to picture themselves as lion killers, but the biblical authors like to picture God as a lion who kills kings. See how that works? That's a metaphor. We need to delve into the literary meaning, not the literal meaning. Another example uh, that we could say much, much about, this would be a great series, the problem of parables. What's the literal meaning of a parable? There once was a man who had two sons, and the younger son said... Now, let me ask you this. Does the meaning of that parable, the parable of the prodigal son, does the meaning of that parable depend on there having been historically and, and literally a man who had two sons? That is, if we went back to the time of Jesus, does his message hinge on us being able to meet the man who had the two sons? No, right? It's a story with a profound theological truth and purpose to communicate that really doesn't at all hinge on whether there was a man who had those two sons. We can imagine there probably were men who had sons and faced similar situations. But Jesus wasn't talking about the guy he met last Tuesday. Jesus was telling a story to communicate a truth. But the story didn't have to be true in order to communicate truth. You see how that works? That poses all sorts of problems for literal interpretations. The literal interpretation demands that the man was a real person and had real sons. We could find them if we went back in time. Here's the thing. No one reads the parables that way. This is not some novel thing I'm saying. This is just how you always read parables anyway. I'm just saying, yeah. Do what you're doing, and it's not literal interpretation. It doesn't work. Finally, the last point. And um, this goes back to some of the earlier statements you said But when I asked what's behind the, the Chicago statement. You said control and preserving, and not all of these things about kind of keeping a tradition alive. Here's the biggest problem for literal interpretation, or people who subscribe to it: church has never done it. Church has never done it. From the earliest centuries, the church has uniformly affirmed that the Bible has more than just literal meanings, that it should be read for more than just literal meanings. This is not a new 21st century liberal Protestant move. The church fathers and mothers would have been horrified at the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy. Maybe not horrified, that's a bit strong. They just would have said, well, that's not what we do. Early on, Origen, Tertullian, Augustine, Jerome, Gregory of Nyssa, the list goes on and on and on, affirmed two or four senses of biblical meaning. One was literal, although they they tended to call it historical, not literal, but I think by historical they mostly meant what the Chicago folks mean by literal. They said, yeah, that's there. We can read scripture that way. We can. That's good. You should do that. Have some sense of that. But they also said all texts also have a spiritual meaning, right? It wasn't, you couldn't exhaust the meaning of the Bible by reading it literally. This is, y'all, this is second century CE. This is like just after Paul dies, the church is saying this. And these were the Orthodox people. I mean, these were the conservatives of the day, right? These weren't the liberals of the day. The conservative approach to reading scripture, listen to this, the conservative approach to reading scripture was to think that it was non-literal. They said there were at least these two senses, but sometimes they made it into four. They talk about the tropological, the anagogical, and the allegorical. A tropological sense is a moral sense. What's the moral lesson of this text? What's the moral lesson of Genesis' creation account? What's the moral lesson of the story of David? There's the anagogical, which has to do with, um, I need to look at my notes, I'm forgetting. Oh, the, uh, yeah, the, the hidden sense, the symbolic sense. You read Genesis, and the garden stands for something else. The snake stands for something else. It's this hidden symbolic meaning. And then there's the allegorical, which... Um, in, uh, oh, I'm sorry. the alle- Sorry, I'm getting confused. The allegorical is the hidden sense. The anagogical is the future sense. Sorry, I got a little scrambled over for a second. The anagogical is kind of the... The, the, the eschatological sense that is kind of reading biblical stories as descriptions of the distant future. Anyway, it's not all that important that you remember tropological, anagogical, and allegorical. The point is the church did this. It's really a, tw- a late 19th, earliest 20th century phenomenon to move away from this variety of interpretation. So we actually have our labels wrong. Here's my point. We have our labels wrong. What we call conservative ways of interpreting scripture today, that is, literal interpretations, they, that is the liberal view insofar it's the view that does not conserve what the church has always done. Those, for instance, in the mainline church, like the PCUSA, who recognize different senses of a text beyond the literal, that's the conservative way of reading scripture because it conserves a way the church has always read the text. We have our labels wrong. And it's an important point in part because the folks who wrote the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, good meaning folks I'm sure in every way, they like to, in, in a sense, they, they tend to depict people who don't read the Bible literally as not taking the Bible seriously, as not believing in the Bible, as not really having much of a faith at all. And I just want to respond to them and, and say, this is what the church has been doing. This has been the faithful, serious way of engaging scripture forever. So for us, or I'm I'm maybe uh, labeling you all too broadly here, but for those who don't go towards the strictly literal interpretation, you are preserving a rich and faithful tradition of reading scripture. You are not the liberals, you are the conservatives. Any questions on that? (laughs) Any questions on that, points of clarification? Yeah, Paul. Well, that might be right. <laughs> and we, we can use those uh, terms differently in a different, different ways. Anything else on this point? Okay. Let me open that up then, because if we've created space to read the Bible non-literally, then the next logical question is, well, what should we be looking for? How might we read it non-literally? I can't possibly give a detailed answer to that, but I have a model. I really have three pictures I want to give you that might help you think about uh, your, um, how to take the Bible seriously. Biblical meaning can be engaged in, this is Thesis 7, can be engaged in light of three worlds of interpretation. I want to unpack that for you, but the biblical meaning can be engaged in light of three worlds of interpretation. Do you want me to shut this? Is that, is that buzzer too loud? I, 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 no, I, I don't know. Is it the chiller? Air, yeah. Air conditioner. Okay. Let me, let me just, I'll just bring this close a little bit. I think the chiller had been broken, which, uh, which is why this room was so hot. Yeah, that's a little better. Okay, church scholars throughout the ages have developed numerous methods for engaging biblical meaning. And I want to give you a way to kind of conceptualize those different methods, or even come up with a little bit of a blueprint for how you might think about how you interpret scripture, whether it's in a Bible study, a Sunday school class, or or just on your own. I'm going to give you three images, and I'm going to call them three worlds of interpretation. Each, quote unquote, world of interpretation um, is as valid as the next. And each world is essentially a way of approaching the text with a set of questions and perspectives. And what we're going to do... Well, I need to make a decision here for sake of time. I wanted to do an example with 2 Samuel 7. Let me see if it works without it for sake of time. Uh, and then if not, what we can add it back in. So the first world of biblical interpretation is the world behind the text. It's an interpretive approach that focuses on the world behind the text. In this approach, we essentially see the Bible as a window. That's, what the, that's our first image, the Bible as a window. What, what's your goal with a window? To look through it, right? I don't usually look at a window, unless it's stained glass, and kind of admire the pain or admire, I, I want to see what's on the other side of it. What's out there? What's the world on the other side of the window? One way to think about the Bible and to engage this meeting is to see the Bible as a, as a, uh, as a window. You want to look through it to find out uh, the, con- the historical context. So let's say you have on your table, um, actually, let's just do this. It's going to be helpful to have a, a concrete example. There's a a printout on your table, and I have extras um, as well. This is 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 7. Just take a quick moment. Actually, let me have one of these. Thanks. Just take a quick moment and read this text. And then what we're going to do for this text is for uh, each of the worlds, we're going to say what sort of questions would we ask about this text if we were approaching the Bible within one of the worlds of interpretation. So just take a moment to read it. It should be a a somewhat familiar text. All right, you're just about done? Familiar text, you've heard this text before maybe? It's a, it's a good advent text actually. Um, uh, if you were reading this Bible, or this, this text from a historical perspective, if you were treating this text as a window and you wanted to look through it and ask questions about the world behind the text, what would you wonder? What sorts of questions would you have? It's a way of asking a historical question about this text. Okay. So a metaphor for the Okay. That's good. I, I would actually I want to I would think I want to put that question in a different world. Not like a bizarre world, but just another one of the worlds that we have. Because I think you're asking a little more of a literary question when you say metaphors. What's the history behind this text? For instance, let me just get you started. For instance, we might ask, where are we right now? Where is David? How did he become king? When was this during his reign, reign, right? When was this written? What about these houses? What were houses like in the ancient world? Why did David want to build a house for God? Was that a normal thing? What is a house for God, by the way? A temple. And what's David's house? A palace. Note the play on house all throughout this text. It's actually used three ways. House as temple, house as palace, and house as dynasty, okay? That's more of a literary question. But still, we might wonder about why did God have, God have a house? Was this the first time God had the house? What about this tent and tabernacle? When did God go about in a tent and tabernacle? What part of Israelite history is that referring to? Um, what other questions like that? Why, why was he moving about? Why was God moving about? Yeah, that could be a historical one. It could be theological, but I like it. It's historical, too. What else might we ask from a well, yeah, what about, there's this Nathan, right? This, this guy comes in, he's a prophet. What were prophets like? What did they do? How did prophets relate to kings? See, these sorts of questions here, tenuously, by the way. Uh, how how do prophets, you know, what we're asking, we're looking at the Bible and saying, what's on the other side? I need some more information. I need to look through the, the uh, window to gather some more information to understand this text. Because one might say, look, if you don't know much about prophets, temples, or David as king, it's going to be really hard to get the meaning out of this text, right? You all see what I'm doing with this? We're, we're taking the Bible as a window and trying to look through it to gather information that will help us better interpret. Now, we still might make modern-day applications to some of this stuff, but our, our interest is broadly historical. Let me show you another world, and maybe the world will start making more sense as we see other ones. There's also the world of the text, the world of the text. Instead of seeing the Bible as a window that we look through, I want to suggest that we can see the Bible as a picture that we look at. So if you're looking at one of Monet's water lilies, are you trying to see through it and think, I wonder what type of canvas he used? What sort of easel is this on? No, what are you looking for if you're looking at a painting? Beauty, color, texture, the brushstrokes, Florida? Structure, Structure. yeah, how is it it arranged? What's its composition is the word artists use, Um, right? We have a very different set of questions when we look at a painting than when we do when we look out a window, right? I would call this generally a literary focus. And Margaret, that's why I wanted to put yours here a little bit more so, because you're asking questions about metaphors and how they worked in this text. What sort of literary questions or world-of-the-text questions might we ask of 2 Samuel 7? Lisa? There's dialogue in it. Hmm? Where does the dialogue come from? How does that dialogue reflect uh, like, um, the message? Yeah, what's the dialogue? We might even like, try to structure the dialogue and see how it goes back and forth. Right, because there's three speakers, right? David, Nathan, and God. Right? So we might think about, well, how does that interplay happen? Who's speaking to who? And does it matter? Does God speak to Nathan? Does Nathan speak what's the what's the relationship? I love it. That's exactly right. What other yeah? Why, why is it being
1: said? Yeah.
0: Exactly. What happened in 2 Samuel 6? And what happens in 2 Samuel 7, 18? I'm not not actually asking you that question, but that's a sort of literary question that you would ask. What's the literary context? Another one still would be, how is David characterized in the book of 2 Samuel? Is he generally a good character in 2 Samuel? No. Is he? Why not? What does that mean? What does it mean for God to be making this kind of unwavering covenant with a king who's really sort of a mess, right? That's more, that's also a theological question, but it's kind of based on how is David characterized, because David's characterized differently in 2 Chronicles. Right? There's different portrayals of David as a king. That's a literary question. We're not asking did the historical David exist and where did he live? That's a world behind the text question. A world of the text uh, question says, how is he portrayed? What sort of king is this like? What does he do? What does he not do? What is he good at? What does he fail at? These are literary questions. We might trace the plot or the structure. We might focus on specific words in the text and wonder how they're used elsewhere. I already mentioned one of these. It's the play on the word house. The same Hebrew word, bayat, is used to do three different English things. to talk about a palace, a temple, and a dynasty. That's a literary question. The author is playing with a word to kind of draw out a connection. It's not David who's going to build. So David wants to build a house that is temple for the Lord, but it's the Lord who's going to build a house that is a dynasty for David. That's a literary observation that helps drive home the point of David and and, uh, Yahweh's relationship. Another fun one that has to do with words. Um, You see in verse 6, it's the last word in verse 6, where God says, but I've been moving about in a tent in a tabernacle. You see that? The word in Hebrew is mishkan, which might neither be of any interest to anyone, except for the fact Then the opening chapter of the book of John, the gospel writer says, the word became flesh and lived among us. That's how your NSV translates it, but it's not the typical word for live in Greek. It's not zao, we get the words like zoe from. Um, It's not live. It's essentially a word, it's the word mishkan. What John is saying is that God became flesh to tabernacle among us. Why? Because he has this text in mind. He's making a connection back to this and saying, don't build God a temple. God is going to mishkan. God is going to tabernacle with you, but not in the tent this time, but in the flesh. Right? That's a literary observation that drives home an important meaning of, I would say, 1 John 14, or John 1:14 and 2 Samuel 7. You guys with me on that? That's the world of the text. You guys can do this on your own. You can do this in Sunday school and Bible study classes. The third world is the world in front of the text. In this case, we're gonna not see the Bible as a window or as a picture, but as a mirror. We're gonna allow the Bible to reflect back to us certain questions themes, interests that we have. It's not as if the Bible isn't saying things, but we take a little bit more of an assertive role. We have to, in order to see something in a mirror, you have to put something in front of it first. And that's how this way of of interpreting goes. We put something in front of the Bible and say, "What what does the Bible say about this sort of thing? The Bible doesn't set out maybe to talk about that sort of thing, but we allow the Bible to reflect back. So maybe we have interest about environments or ecology, or something like that, right? The Bible doesn't, there's not a whole book in the Bible that lays out an ecological plan for the world. But the Bible does have things to say about the cosmos and land and land care. So if we shine in front of the mirror this question about the environment, the Bible can reflect back to us a good deal of information. But it's not going to say it on its own, or at least not in the... The, the, in kind of some long, extended form. Um, what about in this text? What sort of, and by the way, this is, a, I would say, a more, a more broadly theological focus. A theological focus. What sort of theological or world in front of the text questions might we ask of 2 Samuel 7? Okay, what, what's this whole deal with the prophets, right? Not just what's the relationship with the king, but why are prophets used? by God? Why is there an intermediary here in the form of Nathan? That's a great question. This text doesn't set out to explain that point, but one could get something from this text to help answer that question. What else? Anything else? Lisa? What is the role of the covenant? Yeah. What about covenants? Remember, this whole thing ends in God establishing a covenant with David. Now, it doesn't go on and on and on and on and on about the nature of that covenant. But that would be an interesting question to to reflect into the mirror of the Bible. Hey, what, what is this Davidic covenant all about? Is this the only type of covenant we find in the Bible? What's the Mosaic covenant like? And how is it different than the Davidic covenant? This text doesn't set out to explain that to us. There's no book that begins with the words, the Mosaic covenant is like this, and the Davidic covenant is like that. But it's a valid question to reflect in the mirror and then to use scripture to help answer it, right? It's not a historical view, by and large. It's not a literary view, by and large, although it might b- draw on both historical and literary things. It's a, it's a more broadly theological question. It might even ask things about, um, or, or uh, here's an example, something about more modern theological concerns. This text promises Israel a land. We might ask a very hard, modern question about what does that mean today? How does that sort of thing interface with Israel, Palestinian, and I should add, Christian conflicts in the Middle East? This text doesn't go into that. But it does say something about land and promise and God and covenant. That might be a question to reflect back into it. I don't know what the answer would be, by the way. But that would be a sort of world in front of the text question to ask. Do you guys get a sense of how this works, Bruce? Mm-hmm.
1: I find that as I'm reading, I'm reading that way. It's so we've been trained to do a little yes.
0: sense maybe from Sunday school before. Yes. Yes. Sense, which I didn't think I had. Yes. You know, to, to these other,
1: it's like, wow. I, mean, yeah. I don't want to say I'm brainwashed, yeah. but I mean,
0: I've been raised. We, we, we've been trained, yeah. And, and, and that, thank you for saying it. You said it so well, because um, it does express kind of what my hope is for this. I'm not asking you to throw out the historical. I'm not asking you to throw out a literal sense. I think that should be on our mind. I think, actually, there's problems of r- always reading the Bible allegorically, let's say. There's always some hidden meaning in there, and it's it's all symbolic, and it's not really talking about anything. No, I, I think the Bible talks about some literal things, some historical things. We've proven that. We've seen that in other theses, that the Bible has history in it. There are historical senses. But I would have you, and this kind of brings all this together, keep in mind the three worlds, right? For a given day, or moment, or study, one could fully inhabit one of those worlds and none of the others. That's okay, you could have a whole Bible study on the, on the world behind the text. I just want you to have in mind that there's other worlds too. And that at some point in your life with scripture, that at some way, however curvy the road is, you find yourself moving between the different worlds. Or at least you have, even as you talk about, or maybe you're even drawn to one of the worlds. Maybe, you know, you were a, a comp lit major in college, and so you just love the literary world. That's great, do that. But be mindful that it's not, it's not the only way to get at and engage with the meaning of the Bible. There are these other worlds that we might one day inhabit. Or at least that fellow brothers and sisters in Christ may inhabit. And maybe they're sitting right next to us in the pew. And maybe they're not all that strange or weird or bad. Maybe they're just have a different set. Maybe they're just in a different world. That does make it sound... Uh, a bit offensive to say, well, he's in another world, but, uh, but that we have these different frameworks or we ask different questions. I, I would say that we need to keep in mind that we can never exhaust the Yes, reasons. yes. More. Thank you. you know, they were doing the same sorts of things. I mean, when you read rabbinic literature, and I'm no expert at rabbinic midrash or other forms of interpretation, but they're not reading historically. I mean, by and large, they're reading in a very much an allegorical way. In fact, in a very expansionistic way in ways that would make a lot of Christians feel uncomfortable. So the way midrash sometimes works, you say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this about the text, and Rabbi so-and-so says that about the text. And then they go off and have a conversation about the text, which often, by the way, involves kind of inventing stories, right, or saying like, well, the Bible didn't talk about this, so here's how it is, right? So there, it's a very free form of interpretation. The, church, the early church never went that far. There's no comparable, I think, by and large, uh, set of uh, interpretive texts like uh, the Midrash in Christianity. But they did have these other senses of the meaning. You know? They didn't read Genesis and ask, is this science? They read Genesis. You read Origin on Genesis. And he's talking about all sorts of allegory things that to us would sound crazy. But he wasn't talking about science. But you could the way that use Old Testament scripture, Hebrew Bible scripture, as an interpretation or a layer of theme or a Absolutely. Yes. The Jewish rabbis, the That's right. Yeah, and, there, and there, people talk about some of the, the uh, interaction between interpretive approaches in early Christianity, in rabbinic Judaism, and at the Dead Sea at, at Qumran. And there are some similarities. Um, not exactly the same, but there are similarities in approach. I think the point of it, and I, ne- I need to bring this to a close in, in light of time, um, but they felt more freedom. They took the Bible as seriously, if not more seriously, than any, any of us do. I guarantee you that. But they felt far more freedom to kind of interact with the text in a more imaginative way, or at least in a way that went beyond kind of the narrow confines of historical and lit- uh, literal approaches. And to me, that's a point of encouragement, I think. Um, we have a lot of work to do next week. Because of my slowness and propensity to follow rabbit trails and tangents, um, we still have, I believe, (laughs) if my math is correct, five theses. So catch what's happened. I've done seven in three weeks. And now next week, I'm going to attempt to do five in one. Um, Now, I anticipated my slowness. And the last three really are kind of just a, uh, it's really one that I've called three different things. So there is really a legitimate chance that we finish next week. Um, but we will have to move a little more rapidly and I will help shepherd us through that. Thank you very much for being here. I hope you can be back next week. Hey. <laughs>